Well, new year, old book. Uh, going to old in a lot of ways. I guess for us, we've had we had 28 weeks of uh, Mark before today, so you might be able to figure out we're in part 29. We took some time to look at uh, what we called the first songs of Christmas, looking at Mary and Zechariah and the angels and eventually Simeon talking about Jesus coming at our Advent time. So we're back into Mark, back into uh, actually right in the middle of chapter 12 uh, as Jesus continues to teach, giving you some timing here uh, on location. He's in Jerusalem. Uh, he's actually in the temple here. Uh, we're in depending on how you look at it here in Mark, we're, we're in the last week. The triumphal entry's already happened. So we're in either, probably either Tuesday or Wednesday of that last week, if we're assuming the Passover is on Friday, which I think makes sense. So uh, a lot of teaching. I don't know if you knew that, you know, almost 40% of the gospel teaching comes from the triumphal entry on, you know, that last week. And then, of course, some of the resurrection stuff for some of the, not so much in Mark. So the teaching, again, is coming... And I, as it starts out in verse 45, that as Jesus taught in the temple, he said. Uh, so when he's in the temple, there's a lot of public access. I think we've shown pictures of the temple. It's, it was Herod's temple. It was huge. Uh, thousands of people, maybe tens of thousands of people could have gotten in there. He's probably in the Solomon's portico I, place where he can get a lot of folks there. So you could have, I guess my point is you probably got Gentiles, you got Jews, you got scribes, you got Pharisees, you've got common people, you've got just about every ite and e that you can get is in there probably listening to it. And he's going to sing a lot of few as he says, how can the scribes say that the Christ or the Messiah is the son of David? David himself is the Holy S in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is it he his son? And the great crowd heard him gladly. Which I think is nice that the great crowd heard him gladly. I wish the great crowd would have told us what this meant. Uh, it's a little hard, isn't it? This is a hard, we get more in the other Gospels, which is helpful. Um, but he's teaching in the temple, and he's saying that the scribes teach th rightly that the Messiah, uh, the anointed one, what, what the Greek word is Christ, um, is a descendant of David. He has to come from the day. In fact, we've seen that, you know, blessed are you, son of David. It's not like David was his dad. It was David was his, his ancestor. It had to, this Messiah and Isaiah and other places has to come from the line of, you know, we get the Lion of Judah, the tribe of Judah, the shoot of Jesse, all that type of stuff. Has to come through David. And, and obviously, we'll see that in, in both Matthew and Luke. You see the lineage coming from David. They want to make sure that this guy came from the right place. But there's a cup, one thing in here that you, you might miss before we get to actually trying to understand what exactly uh, this psalm says, um, Psalm 110. Uh, notice how what he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit. I don't know if that's what your translation in. You'll see under, by, under the influence of. This is Psalm 110. So what does Jesus think about Psalm 110 as far as its inspiration? You know, it's the Holy Spirit did this. Uh, we've said this before, and I just, just to say it quickly, in the New Testament, why there's a lot of different reasons you can believe. I've always said you should never have faith in something that doesn't have evidence. You shouldn't trust it, right? 
I mean, people, it's out there today. In fact, I went, I actually went to the Webster's Dictionary, which I don't like to do, but um, the very first definition of faith was believing without evidence. And I'm like, well, that's not the biblical definition, but that's a definition, and that's what some people will say. We have faith in Jesus because there is evidence. We're reading the evidence, part of it. Um, there's objective evidence, there's physical evidence, there's subjective evidence in our hearts. But look at what Jesus thinks about the Old Testament. Every time Jesus talks about the Old Testament, he always lifts it up as inspired. Something you can rely on. You know, and so th that's one, the main reason maybe that we believe that the Old Testament was inspired. I mean, right here we, we see uh, a portion of it that way. Why do we believe the New Testament? Well, you can go into John 14 and other places. Jesus says, I'm going to make sure you guys, you 12, or at that point I think there was only 11, um, you're going to, I'm going to make sure the Spirit, the Comforter, the Paraclete, the Counselor is going to come and He will make sure that you remember everything I taught you. So we've, we've got both ends, you know. And, and you could say that to somebody, and they may not be compelling to them. Just make sure it's compelling to you. You know, sometimes we make good cases. We've got good evidence. But some people don't want to believe it. There's still that subjective Holy Spirit that has to change their hearts. I know that. But they can understand it. Uh, so Jesus, that's, if somebody asked me, why do you think the Old Testament's inspired? I say, well, Jesus thought it was. And if you want to argue about it, you can take it up with him. And if they say, well, why do you think the New Testament's inspired? Well, I think Jesus made sure it was through the power of the Spirit. And if he made the same thing. And there's other things we can do. We've got all kinds of textual evidence, sure. But that's something to remember uh, that's in there. But what does he clarify here about the Messiah? Uh, he's saying, how can you say that he's his son when he is the one that is saying that, He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, or of, of, of the Lord. And, and you don't get this in English, but there's two different lords there <laughs> in, in Hebrew. It's easier to see. Um, in Greek, they just translate it kurios. But the, but the idea that the Lord said to my Lord, when somebody says that, like if you said, you know, Charlie said to Charlie, either Charlie's nuts or there's two Charlies. There's two persons here. You start to see the Lord said to my Lord. So you get a little bit of, just a little, a little bit of kind of two-person-in-one-Yahweh thing going here. Uh, it really could be translated, you know, Adonai said to Yahweh. Um, or Yahweh said to Adonai, actually, is what it would be. You know, so you've got something going on. It's a little bit hidden. We get much more in the New Testament. So the idea of the Trinity is there when you put the Spirit in there with it. But the one you really see is that the Messiah, even though is descended physically from David, we just, you know, we, we still got him in the manger over here. You know, born in Bethlehem, you know, around 2023 years ago. Um, I know it's 2024, but it's just started. That we say, that's, that's the part of the descendant, but he sets it the right, he's also divine. And that's been uh, what the, the scriptures have put out all the time. And this is, again, a solution, not a problem. That's a big, uh, most uh, pseudo-Christian cults don't see Jesus as divine. Or they don't see Jesus as human. <laughs> and we try to put those in tension. Why? Because the Bible does. Well, tension's the wrong word. We try to put those in, in harmony, I think. How does that work? Well, it's a little hard. And there's books written about it. You can read them. I read them in seminary. I read them now. It's 
the fact that he was truly human, but he was also truly divine. And we think that's what the scriptures say. That's, he's just saying this a little bit here. We don't know. Maybe there was more dialogue than this. We just don't get it. But you can see it in, in the letters to some extent. And then as we try to understand it, why do we say he's human? Well, you know, he was a baby. That's an interesting way to start the humanity, isn't it? You ever wonder about that? I just wondered about that now. This could be a rabbit trail, but hopefully I won't go too far. You know, Adam and Eve weren't babies, were they? doesn't seem that way. Adam seems to be, what, 32 and a half? I don't know, somewhere in the middle. Um, but that's the way God did it. If you want to see humanity, it's just like Jesus comes into a, an infant that doesn't even, didn't even verbalize anything yet other than, I'm hungry or you need to clean me up. It's usually the same thing. Ah, you know, it's the same. But that's, that's the humanity part. But then Jesus comes on the scene and does things that only God can do, forgiving sin, saying he's the only way. I mean, this is Yahweh stuff. So it's both. And again, I won't go any farther with this, but just think that it's true, you can, you can comprehend that. How it works, that's well, we, I don't know if they'll figure it out once we, the new heaven and the new earth, they'll probably still try to figure it out. He's unique. Just like in the Trinity, one God in three persons. That's the only being that's like that. So it's a little hard to understand, but we can comprehend it. That's all that matters. Give us, it's revealed. It's a solution to the text, not a problem. And then he goes on in 38. Uh, and I, I'm guessing, you know, they got this great crowd, heard him gladly. Uh, I don't know if the scribes cared to what he was saying. They, they didn't respond, it doesn't look like. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. Now, I'm not know if all the scribes are this way. If you remember way back in November, which in here would have been way back the day before, uh, the, there was a scribe that came and seemed like he was not far from the kingdom of Jesus. So, that's, I mean, this may be just those that do this. Um, and they like their best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast to devour widows' houses, which will be helpful in the next little section we'll hit, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Yeah. That's, they like, they delight in, they desire, they wish for standing and rank. Um, and you, you all know, I didn't wear it today, but you all know I would never do that because I've got a shirt that says I'm humble. So um, it, this is hard for if any of you have ever did any leadership position, you, you, you can, it, you, it, it very quickly becomes you. It's like, you know, it's kind of like the parable where, you know, where he tells, he goes to the, uh, this is in Luke, where he goes to one of the Pharisees' houses and he says, you know, if you go into a, a place of, 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 don't go to the place of honor. Don't sit there, you know, kind of sit in the back and let the, the leader bring you up. Of course, we're all back there like, I'm not in the place I should be. You know, it's, it's hard. You know, you're up on a stage, you know, you're, I'm, I'm probably what, about, you know, 26 inches higher than y'all, right? That makes me more important. It's easy to get into this and you have to, it usually doesn't take long to get humbled, but you have to work at it. You really have to say, hey, this is not about me. It's, it's you, are you pointing to, to the right person? And, and that, that can happen to any of us. You know, we have to be careful with that. They have an appearance of piety, but seek honor for themselves. That's the key. Um, it's that you've got to have that intermediary. If you want honor from God, let him give it to you. 
Do what he says, he'll give you the honor. Follow him, he'll make you worthy. Put your sins in his hands, he'll erase them, and now you're, you're blameless. If you try to do it yourself, you always mess it up. And it's, uh, it's that Hebrews, you know, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and predict, uh, uh, of our faith. So I think when we do this, they, they have this appearance. So it's, it's hypocrisy to some. But it comes down to the M word, the motive word, which is really hard to know what other people's motives are. In fact, one of the biggest problems, I think, in all relationships is we think we know the other person's motive when we don't. I mean, I know that never happens to you, but sometimes in marriages, like a husband, well, she's just doing that because she just wants to tear me down. She might be doing that because you've watched your third football game and you need to get off your butt and help her with the dishes. That may be her motive. I don't know. Uh, but again, motive, it matters. Their motive, it looks like Jesus calls them on it. It's to deceive and exploit. Um, and they exploit widows. Of all the people not to exploit, that's pretty high on God's list. You go back to Exodus 22. You must not exploit a widow. That was pretty clear. <laughs> or an, who else? An orphan. Why? Because in that culture, and it's not that much different in our culture, right? A widow of somebody doesn't have the husband, the, the, the family unit isn't there, and so they're vulnerable. They need to be protected, especially in that culture back in Exodus. And the orphan has no, no, no mom or dad. Very exploitable. I mean, if you've seen that, uh, what's the movie with Jim Caviezel, uh, The Freedom One, with all the trafficking and all that? Sound of Freedom. Um, just in that, I mean, think about that. A lot of those kids are orphans. Um, some of them become orphans because they're be taken too. But it's this is the very near and and close to God's heart. Uh, and we're gonna hit that in the second half of the sermon. Two part sermon today, if you're wondering. We're in part one, so. Take another sip of your coffee. It's not going to be that long. But the other thing he says is long prayers. And I, I remember reading, I loved reading Martin Luther. Uh, he, he was a, one of the reformers back, and now all the people in, the, in our Bible study at 930 know when, you know, right around 1515 to about 1530 was when he wrote most of his stuff. So a while back, but I love the way he said, and I've always kind of tried to do this. You got to be a little careful. But he said, if you're praying for longer than 45 seconds, you're just making noise. He said, make it, it's in corporate prayer. Now, when he prayed himself, <laughs> you know, the dude would pray for two or three hours. What did Jesus do? Do you think Jesus just had 45 seconds of prayer when he went around <laughs> into the desolate places? I think it was a little bit longer than that. Um, and even Jesus' prayer, if you do it, I know I've actually been in a church where that was done in nine seconds. Um, but I think you might want to take a little bit longer. You know, our Father out in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, you could do it really fast, but it's not supposed to be FedEx guy stuff. You know, this is... But if you go back to Matthew where this comes from, I think it's just ironic. Um, and I, I won't get into the, the depth of, uh, of what you should do in, in liturgical worship or not. I mean, we, we can talk about that sometime. But if you go to the Lord's Prayer section, it's right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and he talks about that you, your giving should be in secret in verse 4. And then he says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Huh. All right, well, that's good, good advice. And this is very similar to what we're talking about now in, in this text. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. Well, what's bad about that? You know, it's a... 
One thing, if you ever go to a Bible study that we have, I'll never ask you to pray unless you want to. I'll never even ask you to talk unless you want to. You know, some people say, well, they might ask me a question. It's like, we're there to hopefully you'll ask questions and maybe we'll, maybe we can find an answer. We want to be comfortable. But, and you, well, what's the problem? Well, they may be seen by others. Uh-oh. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into the room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. If you want to pray well, pray, if it's not by yourself, you know, with your spouse or just with a small group. I know myself, my, I would never pray what I pray in, in secret in myself that I would probably ever pray with anybody else. And we don't do that here. You all, you all want to come up and we'll confess sin? You know, I think you should do that, but I don't, I think here again, your, your main prayer life, it should be you and God. And, and, and other, you know, you, you do the math. I mean, it can be other people. I think that's fine. And it's fine if you're in a small group and somebody says, hey, do you want to pray? And you say, no, we should say, okay, fine, you know, because we read the text and it said really where you need to be praying is you and, you and God, because you can pour your heart out. You can tell him that stupid thing you did. You can tell him that evil thing you did, because you don't want other people knowing that, at least not very many, Right? And when you pray, verse 7, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. And this is the ESV translation. Uh, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. I think maybe this is what Luther was reading. Do not be like them, which is pretty much the whole theme of the Sermon on the Mount. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then pray like this, and then you get the Our Father. Wasn't well, that interesting? I just think you know, not try to throw any particular uh, flavor of Christianity under the bus, but right after we're told not to heap up empty phrases, we're given the prayer that sometimes we just emptily throw out just because it's Sunday. You know, our Father, we don't have any evil men, right? That was slow. That was four seconds. You know, again, the Lord's prayer is wonderful. Pray it all the time. But it, I think what you'll probably get more out of it if you pray it directly, just you and him. You know, our father. Then you can stop for a while and say, wow, I get to call him father. That's a privilege. You know, we can go on. You know, maybe we'll do a sermon series on that. But we're not calling it the Lord's Prayer because the Lord doesn't need to pray this, right? <laughs> it's the disciples' prayer. It's the prayer of Jesus, I guess we could call it. So when you go back to this, motive matters. He says that, you know, someone who does not know and then does something wrong will be punished only lightly. I mean, but someone who does know, when, when someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. So it's the idea, it, to sum this up, much is given, much is required. You can't expect, and these scribes should have known more. They, they should have known what God was like, because the scribes just, it's not just people taking notes. Uh, it's just people who know that sometimes they're called lawyers. They know the Old Testament. Uh, they're experts. And then a couple verses regarding motive. Um, the sacrifice of an evil person is detestable, especially when it's offered with wrong motive. That's pretty clear. You know, and obviously we don't do sacrifices. Um, this kind of commemorates the sacrifice, obviously. 
But, you know, obviously this is Proverbs. It was written before the New Testament. But what he's saying is, I don't care. In fact, you get, you get into Hosea, I detest your sacrifices. Wait to read Amos at the end here. <laughs> I don't care. It, he doesn't care what you do with your body if your motive is to just lift up yourself or go through the motions. You know, we, we kid about it, but it's background theological. It's like, how many points you get today is a little cold for coming in. You know, what's my point? How many points do you all have now? It's only the seventh, I guess. Maybe you don't have very many for this year yet. And do they reset? Yeah, I'm not sure. But I kid about that because sometimes we look at life that, do I go to worship because I get a point for it? Well, I think you go to worship because you want to honor God and you want to get to know Him better. And there are those days, it's even for me, that you're like, man, I don't know. I'm watching online, can I? You know, yeah, and I'll have to dress up. Boy, I got a shower. You know, we all get that. But then I hope if that happened to you today that you get a little bit out of what's coming. You know, sometimes you just meet the king and it's kind of good. In First Thessalonians, we, for we speak as messengers approved by God. We are entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone ex examines the motives of our heart. And you know your motive, you know, sometimes. Sometimes, that, like I said, I've had that happen to me. I'm sure it had happened to you where you had good motives, but, boy, the other person didn't think that. And that's and don't and try not to do that to other people, I mean, <laughs> or catch yourself. You know, if you don't know what their motive is, it might be good to ask. So we go to the second part, 41 through 44, where we're looking at what we call the widow's offerings. Maybe a story. I remember color books that have this in there. Um, and he sat down opposite the treasury, so he's in the temple, which has the treasury there, and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Never thought about that, but that sounds kind of boring. Maybe it was more fun. I don't know. People watch, right? Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciple to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contribute out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. It's a kind of an interesting, uh, this is not a bad stewardship sermon. You know, so. What do you got in your pocket? What do you got in your bank, bank account? I don't think that's the point here. We're going to look at the point. I did the math, you go to the leptic, you know, go all this down. It pretty much came out to one-sixteenth of a denarius, and a denarius is a day's wage. So, you know, if you're figuring about it, about, about a 30 minutes of wage is what she put in. So, I don't know what that would be today. With, I don't know what the, the going rate is. If you're making 20 bucks an hour, this is not a lot of money. It's a buck and a half, which doesn't even get you a hamburger at McDonald's anymore. So, she didn't put it, but how did she get more? You know, that's the hard part. Well, I think it's in percentage and in mo. He talks about percentage and motive. Why did she do it? Back to the same thing. And remember, always context. We've been talking about motive in the top part with the scribes. We're probably talking about motive here too. So how much do you give? This is it. You know, you get this at the beginning of the year. We don't do much of this. But here's your stewardship sermon within a sermon. Each one must give as they decided in their heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So how much should you give to God? Which doesn't just include the church. There's parachurch ministries. There's all other kinds of things. There's missionaries that we support. All that type of stuff. Let's do this. 
give what you think God, you know, that's exactly how much you should give. It's kind of cool. So if it makes you grumpy, maybe give less. I don't know. Or more. I don't know. Whatever gets you into the happy zone. So, but it's about the motive of the heart, you know, the, 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 give, the giver rather than the amount of the gift. That's really what we're talking about. So, now we don't know this widow's backstory. If you wanted to write a nice little novel, you might go back and say, well, you know, she was, you know, who knows what happened to her? She's a widow. That does tell something about her, right? Her husband's name was, you know, we don't know any of that. How long has he been dead? Uh, how long has she been a widow? Doesn't look like she has a lot. But we talked about it a little bit already, but the Old Testament Torah commands the Jewish society to take care of the widows and the orphans. We saw that in Exodus 22. It comes again even more in Deuteronomy 10. This was the society's job. So she's probably relied on this more than likely. I mean, this is, again, this is 30 minutes of labor. This is not a lot of money. We'll just go with a buck and a half. She's not going to get much out of this. She's given it back to God because she loves God, it looks like. At least that's what Jesus said, and I'll go with that. But they, she should have been taken care of, but he just said earlier, if you, they rob widows' houses. Ooh. I don't think it's good to rob anybody's house, but if you do a widow, that's even worse, it sounds like. And I thought it's probably metaphoric. It's, I, don't, I think he's calling the question in verse 40 whether these commandments were being followed by the Jewish leadership of the time. Because we see that in other places. You know, why was this man born blind? Why is this person a widow? Why did their, her husband die? Why are you poor? Well, because God hates you. That was out there. In Jesus' covenant, it wasn't even in the, I mean, in the old covenant. There's a lot of reasons why somebody could be poor, a widow, or an orphan. And a lot of times it's, it has nothing to do with them. Well, unless they killed their husband, but that, that's a whole other story, right? So, then you go back to Deuteronomy 24, and you can read this. I'll just summarize it for you. It said that you should leave parts of the grapes. You should leave a little bit of the grain. You should leave a little bit of the olives. Why? For the sojourner, for the poor, and if you, you, you know the book of Ruth, she wasn't Jewish, but remember when she comes with Naomi in, in, into the Jerusalem area, what she do? She goes out and gleans the field. Well, she doesn't own the field. And Naomi's a widow, right? She didn't, but she had to go out and work for it. That, that idea, the whole idea in Deuteronomy was, and who knows what this widow did? I don't know. Maybe she helped. We find out in Acts that a lot of the widows and the orphans helped other widows and orphans in the food program that they had. Of course, they got mad at each other, but that doesn't take long. The disciples took care of it. But what was the Old Testament Jewish work ethic? Keep people from being dependent and don't take away their dignity. That's what you should always do, right? as best you can. Obviously, you can't change people's hearts. But give them an opportunity to, 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 to be able, that's what it would, go in. Now, if you're crippled, then that's harder. I realize that. And there, there's stipulations for that. You see this in, in 2 Thessalonians. Even while we were with you, we gave you the command, those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Now, look at the word. The word's unwilling, not unable. <laughs> you're just unwilling. 
You know, it's again, and I do think, and we can't control governmental programs, obviously, but we, well, somewhat, you can vote. I think this year we vote, right? Yeah, we pray about that a lot <laughs> and do it. But we can control our own ministries, right? And you try to do the best you can with helping people give them some dignity, you know, help them uh, get back on their feet uh, and show them that, you know, God's created you to with gifts and talents that you can use. So the widow's coins, really what it probably is, it's thanksgiving for God's provision is probably what she's doing. She knows it's probably not a bunch. Uh, maybe she heard the story of a couple fish and a few loaves being used by God in a way. I don't know by then. It's in all four Gospels. So Jesus is lifting up the Old Testament and he reprimands those who disobey it. It shows their motive. It shows their heart. And he rebukes them in the spirit of Amos. And I want to read that here at the end because Amos is a, a good book. And you might actually, the last verse we read here, you may have heard. Um, because under the old covenant, God's judgment for rejecting him leads to tragic consequences. You can read it, right? Personal judgment, dispersion, exile, foreign rule. Well, what does Amos says? <laughs> Verse 21 of chapter 5, I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me many burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Because it's all about justice. You're not giving justice to people. You're not doing what, he's talking to the leaders here. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's, a, that's the idea. Give justice to the people. That's what God wants us to do. And next week, we're going to look at the Jewish leader's rejection of the Son of God. Messiah is going to lead to terrible judgment for the people of their day. And we'll hit that in the next two weeks. Let's pray. Father, as we come into this new year, that Amos scripture and certainly the scripture here from Mark helps us. Our motives do matter. Why are we here to worship? Why are we singing these songs? Why are we sacrificing our lives? Because we have a motive to follow you, hopefully, and know you better, be part of your kingdom, know you better and better every day. As we sing this last song, may we remember the grace that you've given us. May our motives be to know you better, treat you as our king and try to live a life worthy of the calling you have given us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.